Amen. So we want to celebrate today is the holiness, the greatness, the highness of our God. We're going to do that today by learning about his name, El Elyon, which is found in Genesis 14. And Lynn is going to read this text for us, starting in verse 17 down to verse 24. Genesis 14, verse 17. After Abram returned from defeating Kedor Loamor and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Sheba, that is, the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, With raised hand I have sworn an oath to the Lord, God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me, to Anner, Eshcol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. Amen. This is God's word. So as we consider this name of God, El Elyon, God Most High, we have to simply consider in our own hearts, does God have the highest place? This is an amazing story. It's a unique story. It's got a lot of hard names, and Lynn should pay me that I didn't make her read all those first number of verses. If you look at them, you'll see names of towns, names of people that are pretty hard to say. But what's going on here? Let me show you a map and just review the story here. So this is a land uh, map of the land of Canaan. Um, and what we find here, first of all, is that there is a northern alliance. If you know Israel, you'll know that the large body of water at the bottom of the map is the Dead Sea. And then the smaller body of water to the north is the Sea of Galilee. And of course, there's many events in the life of Jesus that take place around the Sea of Galilee. This northern alliance, way back in ancient time of Genesis 14, uh, was located north of the Sea of Galilee. In fact, some of these places may have not even been on the map at all. So there's this northern alliance of four kings, and this was a dog-eat-dog -dog world. You live by the sword, you die by the sword. It was a time when if you were a king, if in fact these kings were not actually kings of countries or nations, usually they were simply kings of a city, city-states. And if you wanted to enrich your city-state, if you wanted to get more resources, if you felt you were lacking in some resource, you would simply gather up uh, whatever soldiers you had in your city, and you would go out on raiding parties. And that's what this alliance from the north did. They made an alliance, became quite strong, they united all their armies together, and they went around and raided other cities. Now, if you read through Genesis 14, you find that there is another alliance. We'll call it the Southern Alliance. The tricky part here is knowing where this is. I've put a question mark way down at the bottom of the Dead Sea. 
That's where most people today, most scholars believe that the places of Sodom and Gomorrah were located way down at the bottom of the Dead Sea. And the king of Sodom was allied there with four other city-states. They were a southern alliance. When the northern alliance had come through initially, they were able to simply threaten these four cities. And you could do that. There were times when rather than just conquer the other city, you could threaten them. You could say, we will conquer you unless you pay a tribute to us. It was like being taxed. So every year, the five cities in the south would have to gather up their taxes and their tribute and send it on up to the alliance of the north. Genesis 14 tells us that after 12 years, this southern alliance rebelled against the northern alliance and stopped paying their tribute. So you can imagine what happened. The northern alliance goes on a campaign. They end up in the area south of the Dead Sea, or so we assume, and there is a battle that takes place. Now, I had to ask, uh, this is my friend Brian Windle. He's a pastor up in Northern Ontario, and he's actually being trained or educated in the realm of archaeology. If you go back and read Genesis 13, and you read about Lot choosing the plains of Sodom, it sounds like he's looking at that area north of the Dead Sea, that fertile valley where the Jordan River flows from the Sea of Galilee down into the Dead Sea. But as I said earlier, many people believe that Sodom actually was south of the Dead Sea. So I called Brian and asked him, and he, uh, he said, yeah, there's different opinions on that. He looks a little bit like Indiana Jones, which I told him. He sent me this picture. Um, Brian actually has the opportunity to be excavating right now with other believers in the ancient city of Shiloh. Do you remember Shiloh? Uh, that's where Hannah came and prayed to God. She, she was barren. She had no children. And that's when Samuel was born. And Samuel was sent to serve God uh, at the tabernacle in Shiloh. So Brian is actually part of a team that's excavating that very place. In fact, they think they may have found uh, the, the ancient... Um, uh, tabernacle that where Samuel served. So that's kind of neat. He's actually invited me to go. I'm not sure if you guys will let me go or not, but he says I should come and, and help at Shiloh. So the Southern Alliance. Uh, Abram had an alliance. So in Genesis 14, Abram's name hadn't been changed to Abraham yet, but I'll show you a circle here. This is the area, if you can see, that's not very big, or is it? Is it big enough to see where Abram lived uh, near Hebron, the, uh, the great oaks of Mamre? And we read in the story how he was allied with three brothers. Did you notice that at the very end? When he told the king of Sodom, he said, hey, my friends here should get their share, Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre. So Abram had this little alliance. And when the, the northern alliance came and conquered the southern alliance, when the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were defeated, Genesis 14 tells us that Lot was captured. He was living in the city of Sodom. But a person escapes. Maybe Lot sent a servant and said, go tell Abraham, my relative, what's happened. And the, this man finds his way to Abram and tells him what has happened. And then Abram gets down to business. So the, the story here tells us, if you look at uh, verse 14 of chapter 14, when Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Now, I don't know if you can see on the map, 
Dan is on the map. It's, it's way up there. Uh, in fact, if you look at that small black dot at the, at the very top of the map, that's Dan. Uh, this is several days' journey. This is, of course, where the Northern Alliance was heading back. They were heading back home. So Abram goes in pursuit. Did you realize that Abram, this patriarch of the Old Testament, had 318 trained servants? These guys were trained for war. Now, how rich was Abram that he literally had his own mini army? Tells us a couple of things. Number one, it tells us he's wealthy because he could actually employ these guys. He could train these guys. But it also tells us he's wealthy because he had to protect himself and his wealth, all of his treasures, all of his family. So he literally had his own uh, homegrown army of 318 servants, and then he had these other men that he was allied with. So they go in pursuit. They chase down these kings of the Northern Alliance. They catch up to them way north of the Sea of Galilee. And then uh, we'll read here, and we don't think of Abram as, a, you know, as, a, as, an, as an army guy or as a warrior, but he uh, wisely divides his troops and then attacks during the night. You can imagine the Northern Alliance. They've gathered uh, all, of these, all of this wealth and treasures and probably wine and meat and all kinds of things. So likely they did what most people did. They've gotten far enough away from the enemy. They can settle down and party and eat and get drunk and all those kinds of things. So Abram seemed to wisely wait until this had happened and he attacks them at night and he's able to conquer these enemy kings. He's able to recuperate uh, not just all the people who'd come from the Southern Alliance, but all of the wealth and the treasures that had been stolen as well. So Abram wins uh, this great victory uh, way in the north where that star is. That's as far as they went. And now he's traveling back home to, to get back to his own homeland, to bring Lot back to his homeland. And that's where the story begins in verse 17 where Lynn read. It says, after Abram returned from defeating Kederleomar and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shava. Now, where is that? We assume that it's right on the edge of Jerusalem. So I'm going to pull out the map that I showed you a couple of Sundays ago. And this is the topography of the area where the city of Jerusalem is located. And so we assume that the Valley of Shava, which you'll notice here, in brackets, it says that is the King's Valley. When you see that in the Bible, what that means is uh, at the time that this was being written and read, there was a new name. So way back in Abram's day, it was called the Valley of Shava. But in the time that people were reading this or when the scribe was updating it, it was called the King's Valley. It was called the King's Valley likely because it was right on the edge of Jerusalem. In fact, uh, the original city of Jerusalem, or perhaps Salem, is located on that ridge just above the valley. Uh, ultimately, when King David would conquer the city of Jerusalem, he would live right on that lower ridge where the word Salem is now. That was called the city of David. And ultimately, the city expanded. If you go to the right, that big plateau is where the temple was built. And in the time of Jesus, it spilt to to the top of the map across that next valley and onto the next ridge, which is called Mount Zion. But in the time of Abram, there didn't seem to be, there, there likely wasn't much there, except we know that there was a place called Salem, 
likely located up on that ridge. And there was a king of Salem, as we're about to find in our story. So you can almost imagine Abram, he's traveling. So north is to the right of the map. So he's traveling from north to south, and he's, he's traveling down past this town, perhaps city, small city of Salem, and he's traveling through that valley he's heading to the left. And he meets someone who's coming from the left to the right, tells us there in uh, verse 17, it was the king of Sodom. Uh, we read earlier when there was a battle, the king of Sodom, other men from the city had fled up into the hills which if you could expand the map would have been way down to the left where Abram had lived up into the mountainous region. Perhaps the king of Sodom had heard that Abram was out and uh, attacking the enemy. Maybe he'd even heard that he'd been victorious. So now he's coming to meet him. Imagine the entourage. Imagine if you're up on the hill in Salem and you can look down into the valley and you see this massive entourage coming from the north, Abram, uh, with all of his soldiers and all of his allies and all of the people they'd rescued and all of the sheep and all of the coats. It was a massive entourage, I'm sure, of people. And then from left to right, the king of Sodom comes with whatever entourage he had left and probably other men with him. But then we read of someone else who enters into the story in verse 18, a guy named Melchizedek. And it says that he is the king of Salem, uh, ultimately, we believe Salem became Jerusalem, likely in a small city just north of this valley that we've been talking about. Perhaps Melchizedek could look out and see these two groups that were a meeting in front of him in the valley below him. And so he comes out and joins the group. No doubt he had his own entourage. Verse 18 says, he came out, king of Salem, and he brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram. So this is a, a weird story, and it gets really weird with this guy named Melchizedek. There's this meeting between Abram, king of Sodom, and now Melchizedek comes down, and I'm gonna call him a mystery man. Why is he a mystery man? Well, Genesis gives us three verses. It's all we get of Melchizedek here in the ancient story of the Old Testament. Three verses. Verse 18, he comes out to meet Abram. Uh, verse 19, he blesses Abram. And verse 20, he praises God. Then we read at the end of verse 20 that Abram gave this mystery man, Melchizedek, a tithe. And I don't know if it was a tithe of the spoils or literally he tithed to him from all of his wealth and treasures. We don't know the answer to that. But we never read of Melchizedek again. In the rest of the story of Abram, and you remember from two weeks ago, Abram, chapter 22 of Genesis, is instructed by God to come to the mountains of Moriah and to offer his son. So on a ridge not too far from this city of Salem, Abram came again, and that whole story of Abram and Isaac and the substitute ram all happened very close to the city of Salem, but he didn't go and have a visit with Melchizedek. We never read about him again until we come to a couple of places later in Scripture where he's mentioned, but there's a lot of mystery around this guy. For example, we're going to find him. He's the one who's going to give us this name 
El Elyon, God Most High. First, we see it in the description of him. He's uh, king of Salem. He's priest of God Most High. First time we've ever seen this expression used in the Bible so far, this, this name for God, El Elyon. Uh, El, by the way, would be a shortened version of Elohim, which we saw last week, simply meaning God or the strong one. But then it's compounded with this other name, Elion, which means highest or most high. So this guy is not only a king of this city or town of, of Salem, but he's also the priest in the town. That was very unique. The people of Israel never had that combination. They weren't allowed to have that combination. We'd find out later that ultimately the great-great-grandsons of, of Abram, you'd have Judah, who ultimately would be the clan, the tribe, where the kings would come from. But then there was a different tribe. tribe of Levi would be where the priests would come from. And then the, those few occasions when a king of Israel tried to act like a priest, how did that go? Didn't go well at all. It's the judgment of God because it wasn't their place. They weren't allowed to be both a king and a priest, but this guy was. We're going to find that as he uses this term for God, El Elyon, that Abram embraces the name. And I want to show you how, how that happens. So Melchizedek's described as the priest of the Most High God. Then he comes out and blesses Abram by saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, El Elyon. And then he praises God. He says, praise be to God most high, El Elyon. See, we might assume here, or at least for a moment, that maybe Melchizedek doesn't worship the same God as Abram. Like, is he talking about the same person? Like, Abram is a follower of Elohim. He's a follower of Yahweh, God who's made himself known by that name. But this Melchizedek has a different name. Who is El Elyon? Is it the same God? Well, at the end of the story, when the king of Sodom is trying to get his stuff back, well, actually, he says, give me the people. You can have all the stuff. But notice verse 22, Abram's response to the king of Sodom. With raised hand, I have sworn an oath to Yahweh. That's Lord. When you see those capital L-O-R-D letters, that's, that's the name Yahweh. But notice what he does. He calls him Yahweh El Elyon. Yahweh, Lord, God, Most High. In other words, what Abram is saying is, Melchizedek, we have the same God. We worship the same one. And it's like Abram has actually learned something about God from Melchizedek. This name is going to appear many times throughout the Old Testament scriptures, but the first we find it is with this mystery man named Melchizedek, this new name for God. As we've seen, Abram takes his oath, uses the same name, El Elyon. So what is it about this name? What does it mean that God, our God, the God we worship, the God of creation, you might have noticed that, by the way, when verse 19, when Melchizedek is, is blessing Abram, he says, blessed be God most high, ble sorry, blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. Remember last week, we, we learned that Elohim 
often is closely connected to the idea of God as creator. So that's what Melchizedek does here. Abram, you know Elohim, you know Yahweh, you know that he's the God of creation. He's also El Elyon. Yes, same God, God of creation, creator of heaven and earth. What does it mean? That God is most high. Why would he take this name for himself? Why would Melchizedek call him this? Well, there's a few obvious things that we can recognize here. For him to be El Elyon means that he is God above all gods. In those days, everybody had their gods. Some nations had one god, some had many, but they were gods with a small g, weren't they? As we learned last week, these were often gods who were man-made, fashioned by human hands, gods of one's own invention. Or, as often was the case, places like Egypt, it would be something that God had created. It would be something like the sun. We worship Ra, the sun god. What this is saying, when we speak of God as being El Elyon, what we're saying is God is above all gods. There's one God with a capital G, and he is far above all other gods. Notice what we find in Psalm 97, verse 9. You, Lord, you, Yahweh, are the Most High. You are Elyon over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. So if we are followers of this would have been true of Melchizedek, would have been true of Abram, we would just simply boldly proclaim, wouldn't have been popular, might have led to conflict, but we would have said that our God is above your God, right? It's like we used to say, my dad's bigger than your dad. My dad could beat your dad up. I don't know why I used to say things like that. But my God is bigger than your God. He's higher. He's stronger. In fact, my God's alive. Your God isn't. He's El Elyon because he is God above all gods. And in a culture where everybody had their gods, this was an important name to clarify that the God of Israel, the God of Abram, the God of Melchizedek was the one true and high God. Secondly, for God to be El Elyon means that he is transcendent God. I know that's a big word, kind of a theological word, but it simply means what you might imagine. It means that God is so high, transcendent. He, he's high. He, he's so high that we can't even imagine his height. Psalm 113.4 speaks of this. The Lord Yahweh is exalted over all the nations, his glory above the heavens. Now, when I lived in northern Ontario, I used to work at a Bible camp through the summer, and sometimes I remember the, the days of youth camp or senior camp when I'd be on patrol. I'd have my big flashlight, and I'd be patrolling at night, making sure all the kids are, are asleep. But I'd often wander down to the lake and go out and stand on the dock in northern Ontario. No, you know, uh, no, uh, no other lights around, but just the stars in the sky. And just try to imagine the size of it all, the immensity of it all, the immensity of the stars, which seem like small pinpricks to me, but to just stand in awe and consider how great God is that he spoke all of this into existence. The scripture tells us he's got a name for every star. 
There's trillions and trillions. We can't count the number of stars. There's billions and billions of galaxies filled with billions and billions of stars, and yet his glory is above all of that. We can't find the edge of the universe. My God is bigger than the universe that he made. He is transcendent. He is the most high. Have you ever tried to calculate? Think about the, the power uh, that God has built into the universe. How many new, the, the energy of how many nuclear bombs is coming off of our sun, that one star, continuously, continuously, energy and power that we can't comprehend just from one star. And our God is El Elyon. He is the most high God. He is the transcendent God. If you've never had a moment where you trembled at the thought of how great God was, then you, you haven't yet understood how great he is. He is most high. And one last thing. El Elyon means that God is of highest rank. Now, he's highest rank among all the gods. He's highest rank among, among all the universe, everything that he's made. He is certainly of highest rank in your life and in mine, isn't he? This idea of ranks, I've, I've shared sometimes. I love to watch war documentaries and learn about some of the conflicts of history. And when you, when you read about those things, you, it's inevitable that you find out about relationships between one soldier and his superior, and you find out uh, how, how does that actually work. And when, when the general says, you do this, you, you, have, you have no choice, you do this, our culture has watered down this idea. We hate this idea of rank. We don't want to consider that one person could be ranked higher than another person. We, we despise that idea. And I wonder if this affects, infects, our relationship to God, where we fail to recognize that he outranks us. Do we realize that he outranks me, that he is God and I am not? He is the most high God, and when it comes to my life, all that matters is him. He created me. He, he made me. He, he keeps me alive so that I can live in this world for his glory. I am his servant. He is El Elyon. That's why we sing words like this from Be Thou My Vision. Thou and Thou only, first in my heart, high king of heaven, my treasure, thou art. Is that true for you and for me? If it's not true for us, then we don't know him. We don't know that he is El Elyon. We don't know his great worth. Perhaps today this story could help us to recognize how high he ranks. You know, one of the ways we see this play out in the story is in the contrast that we have between Abram and Lot. I've been thinking a little bit about Lot this week and getting increasingly annoyed with him. You go back to chapter 13, and this is where Abram and Lot, they're both very wealthy people. Remember, Abram is Lot's uncle. But they have so much wealth and so many sheep and so many shepherds that their herdsmen were arguing. And so Abram says to Lot, well, let's, we're going to have to, we can't, the land can't sustain both of us. We're going to have to separate, move apart. Abram says, you choose. You want to go to the left, I'll go to the right. And that's where we find that Lot looks over this fertile valley. It would, 
that we read about in chapter 13, and he chooses that. So if you go back to the map, it seems like he's referring to an area north of the Dead Sea. Ultimately, he ends up in Sodom. So if Sodom is south of the Dead Sea, then what it tells us is that Lot was on a progression away from, away from El Elyon. Lot, we know, it tells us in, I believe, chapter 13, that it was just an absolutely wicked city. So not only did Lot decide to move towards it and shepherd his sheep near it, ultimately that we find that he moved in. So this is what we find in the story here in chapter 14 when uh, the, the, the southern confederacy is, is conquered, that alliance. And this annoyed me too, verse 12. Notice, they also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. You know what that means? He didn't go out to fight, and he wouldn't even run away. That's Lot. And after he's rescued by Abram, guess what he does? I mean, I might have been thinking, boy, I wonder if I should hang out with Abram a little more. Maybe I should join his alliance again. Even if it means i got to get rid of some of my stuff. I wonder if it would be better for me to be near Abram than to go back to Sodom. What does he do? He goes back to Sodom. And in chapter 19 is where we read the story of when God destroys this wicked city. And there's two angels who are sent to destroy it. But before they destroy it, because Abram has prayed for Lot and prayed for his rescue and prayed that God would spare the righteous of the city. And these two angels go to Lot and said, you got to get out of here. Go and read that in Genesis 19. They literally had to drag him out. And when they finally got him out of the city, he's like, oh, I can't, I can't run that fast. Could I just go to the next town? Could I go to Zoar? Fine, go to Zoar. And then Lot's wife, I'm sure mimicking her husband's heart, she just can't bring herself. The angel said, don't look back, just go, just get out of here, don't look back. Lot's wife couldn't help it. And you just get the sense that she looked back because Sodom was home. And everything she valued was there. And God judged her for that by turning her, it says, into a pillar of salt. Ask yourself this question. Was God El Elyon to Lot? Or what was, what was most high for him? It was so obvious by the pattern of his life that he failed to recognize God for who he really was. But then we have these other two guys, starting with Abram. And when he hears that his, lots, that his nephew Lot has been taken captive, his heart is roused. He wants to care for his countrymen as his own flesh and blood. So he gets his army together and he gets his alliance together and they go. Now, Abram here is trusting God. I mean, he might have been confident in his servants, but we're still talking here about an alliance of city-states versus a guy with 318 servants and his buddies. The faith that it took for Abram to go and do what he did to conquer the Northern Alliance, to bring Lot back. There was dedication in that, but there was also faith in that. And notice what Melchizedek says to Abram when they meet in the Valley of Kings. He says, God has blessed you. And you almost get the sense that Abram already knew that. He already went out in the strength of his God who he knew to be most high. 
And then we have Melchizedek. Sees these two great entourages coming down through his own valley. And others might have been thinking, what an opportunity. Maybe I could do what everyone else is doing. Maybe I could take up the sword and try and get some of the spoils for myself. But Melchizedek instead comes out bearing gifts. Giving bread and wine. You see a contrast here between these two types of people. And this tells us something about what it means to have God as El Elyon in our lives. Because when God is El Elyon, we live sacrificially. We trust Him. We give of ourselves. We give of our stuff. We honor Him. We end up serving others. We even take a lower place than others because we recognize how much higher God is than us. This is the life of Abram. It should be our lives. When God is El Elyon, we live sacrificially. We trust Him and honor Him. But when the world is your El Elyon, you live selfishly. You trust in yourself. You honor yourself. Do you see why El Elyon is so important? This is our God. Now we're out of time. But I just want to take a moment and show you that this mystery man, Melchizedek, has a strong connection to Jesus Christ. Let me show you some examples that we find later in Scripture. We never read about Melchizedek again in the narrative of the Old Testament. But we find him here in Psalm 110, where David, writing a song of worship, says these words, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Oh, he's mentioned again. Then Jesus picks up on this very psalm, these very words of David. And what he tells us is that David was writing about the Messiah. Jesus, of course, was the Messiah. So he draws our attention back to the psalm of David. And uh, first to, to the idea that he spoke of someone who was his Lord. But then to this idea of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is tied to the Messiah. Then the writer of Hebrews just makes this so clear. If you read chapters 5, 6, and especially 7, you find the writer of Hebrews resurrects this mystery man, Melchizedek, and says, Jesus is like Melchizedek. Why is that? Well, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. He was king of Salem, which means he was king of peace. And then it says he was without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life. Now, what that probably means is that we don't know. Remember how everyone else in the Old Testament, there's record. Like, we know who Abram's father was. We know who his kids were. But with Melchizedek, we don't know who his parents were. We don't know who his grandparents. We don't know his children. We don't know what happened to him. He's a mystery man. And so the writer here is saying, that's like Jesus. He doesn't have the same kind of human ancestry or origins that we have. Jesus came miraculously as God plunked into human history. Now, by the way, some people read this, and they believe that the story of Melchizedek was actually an Old Testament appearance of Jesus. That's why we never read about him again, because he wasn't this historical figure who, who, who lived in Salem you know, for generations. He just made an appearance. Now, I don't tend to, to believe that that's actually what happened, but some people feel that that's who Melchizedek was. Nevertheless, here's the connections that we need to make. Both Melchizedek and Jesus 
can be known as king of righteousness. Prophecy about Jesus from Isaiah 9, he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. Jesus is king of righteousness. Jesus is king of peace. Zechariah 9, see your king comes to you lowly and riding on a donkey. Remember prophecy of Jesus when he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey centuries later. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea. By the way, that's still future. That part of his rule and reign hasn't happened yet. It's coming. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Jesus is a priest of God. He, unlike the priests of the Old Testament, could be both priest and king. And Hebrews tells us over and over that Jesus is our great high priest. The priest, of course, is the minister between God and people. Jesus is the ultimate minister who brings people back to God. And then we see Melchizedek. What did he bring out in the Valley of Kings? What did he bring out to bless Abram and his entourage? Bread and wine. You say, well, everybody ate bread and wine. I know, but it's still cool. It reminds us of Jesus, doesn't it? We just heard Les share this morning about, about that, that broken bread and about that cup. Jesus is like Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a foreshadow of Jesus. And think back to this story where Abram and Melchizedek meet in this king's valley below the city of Salem. And Melchizedek brings out his bread and wine. And centuries later, Jesus in the city of Jerusalem above here, above the King's Valley, would sit down for a meal with his disciples where he would break the bread and share the wine and say, this is my body, this is my blood. And then scripture tells us that they left that upper room, probably up on Mount Zion somewhere. And they traveled what is to the east, came down past the old city of David, down into what they knew as the Kidron Valley. And Jesus, on the night before his death, walked through the same valley where Abram met Melchizedek. He walked up to that mountain on the south that we call the Mount of Olives. And there he sweat drops of blood, cried out to his God, is there any other way? Asked his disciples to pray with him, but then the authorities from the temple come up onto the Mount of Olives, led by Judas Iscariot, who betrays Jesus with a kiss, and then they arrest him, and John's Gospel says they bound him, and they led him back down through that same valley, up back into the city for his false trial, where he would be falsely accused and falsely sentenced. And as we saw two weeks ago where he would give his life on one of those hilltops outside of the city. Here's what blows my mind. Jesus Christ is El Elyon. Don't think that as we study these names of God from the Old Testament that these are the names of God the Father. And then we have Jesus. We know that's not true from so many places in Scripture. It's not true. Jesus himself was El Elyon. And yet in Philippians we read these words, that being in very nature God, El Elyon, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant 
He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Do you see what it means? It means that El Elyon, he didn't just travel down into this valley. He literally lowered himself to the lowest place that a human being could possibly go all the way to the cross. And then God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. This is our God, Jesus Christ. Took the lowest place to rescue sinners like us. Now, elevated by God the Father to the highest place. How could we ever stop marveling at a God like this? How could we ever fail to see that he deserves the highest rank in my life? May God reveal himself to us as El Elyon. May we see Jesus for who he truly is. We're going to sing about that, and then I'll come again and close in prayer. Let's just bow together. Is he El Elyon in your life? Jesus said that where our treasure is, our heart would be. And so the truth is, if God, if Christ is not El Elyon, if he's not the highest place, then our hearts are not right. If that's true for you today, I, my prayer would be that the Holy Spirit would bring conviction, that you might be ready to repent and turn back to the God who is truly most high. Lord, we just want to be humble in your presence. We're not worthy to be your children, except that Jesus has made us worthy. And yet, Lord, we, we wrestle and we struggle so often with false worship, with setting other things ahead of you. People, possessions, business, pastimes, all the extra things that we think we need, Lord, would you help us to see what, what ranks highest? Help us to see, Lord, what, how we actually view you. I pray, Lord, that you could truly be El Elyon to us. Would you loosen our grip on the things of this world? Make us your servants, Lord. Make us live to your honor and glory. I pray that this could be true of all of us here. I pray that it would be true of our church. I pray that we would shine brightly for Jesus because he truly is most high to us. Take us, Lord, from here with this truth. May you be lifted high in our hearts and minds through the days of this week. We want to do this for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God be with you.